We're in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. So this book is given us as a revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is a theme verse within this book, a verse that gives us the who, the what, the when, the where, and even the why. That verse is found in the first chapter of Revelation, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. So this book, this book is actually meant to be read exactly like every other book in the Bible through a covenantal, redemptive, and historical lens. And yes, this book is an apocalypse, meaning that there are symbolic pictures used to describe the events which happen within it, which is what that, verse, that verb in verse 1, the one that I read to you that says to show what that literally means, to symbolize. Chapter 1 in the book of Revelation is all about Christ and the description of there of to us there in chapter 1 is symbolic. Chapters 2 and 3 then introduce the church to us and they're represented by the seven churches that are listed there. They were real churches in real places with real people. But they're also representative and symbolic. Chapter 4 takes us to the throne room of grace where John is taken to the same. They tell us, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and will over and again be told to us as we move through the book of Revelation. The first eight verses of chapter 7, they are representative of the saints that are found under that altar. Those that are seen after the fifth seal is opened. In chapter 6, John sees those saints under the altar of God. And this is the 144,000 that John encounters in the first eight verses of chapter 7. After those, after those verses, which are symbolic to that fifth seal, the representation of the church after that is opened. And he saw, saw them as 144,000 and spoke of them that way because they're merely representative. And because God was tying it in, that representation in with the promises made to Abraham, to David, to Moses, and even to Adam. The true Israel of God is safe in the arms of Christ under the altar. And our verses from today, these are not symbolic. And the events that we're told of here, they occur after that sixth seal is broken. Our verses today begin with after these things, speaking of the time after the sixth seal is broken. John is then shown once again the true Israel of God. But unlike the first eight verses of chapter 7, what we're told about in our verses today, these are not 
symbolic. Verse 9 opens with this. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne of God, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And what this verse is dealing more than the fulfilled covenantal When we read the when we encounter the events as given to us in the word of God, we should always be asking God, why did you place this here? Wh- what is it that I'm supposed to glean from this? What am I to learn of you from this? And we, when we read the Bible from a covenantal, redemptive, and historical point of view, we see that God makes promises. He makes covenants. Not because there's any good in man or because God needs man. He makes covenants and promises because he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And his promises are yes and amen. And we're supposed to know that. You see, thousands of years ago, God chose a man named Abram. He chose him as his own, and he made an impossible covenant, covenantal redemptive promise to him. He said to Abram, you and your barren wife will have children, and I will make you a mighty nation. And Abram believed God, but the promise was still impossible, which is what Abram told God in Genesis chapter 15. And what was the response by God? Verse 15 of Genesis 15. He brought him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and number the stars. And if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your seed be. And the lamb that this multitude that John sees standing before, the one before the throne is spoken of in verse 9 of Revelation 7, that one, that was the lion that was standing before Abram on that starry night so long ago and made that promise to him. And we are given these verses. We're told of the church and the absolute security of the believers in them. Because God knows those who are his, and he keeps his promises. It is spoken of in these seals, the events and the, that happen within them, they are hard. They're trying, and they include tribulation. And God desires that you and I understand the salvation that he has been gracious in giving to us. He has written their name. And our names, if you are his, he has written your name. His saints, the redeemed of Christ, that were named before the foundation of the world, he has engraved your name in the Lamb's book of life. And we are supposed to know the absolute assurance of our salvation in God. 
that he knew us, that he wrote our names in the book of life long before we were born. We're supposed to know that. We hear this being told to us in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God told Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the innermost part, I knew you. And before you came out of the womb, I set you apart. And I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah isn't alone in this predestination, in this choosing. Before Jeremiah was born, another one of those saints that are found under that altar, David, he understood about this. He said in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. Came to it. In chapter 6 of Revelation, when we encounter the saints under the altar of God, they are told to rest, and they are given white robes. And these are the same saints that we are told of in the first eight verses from chapter 7, the 144,000. And we are supposed to know that all the saints that have died in Christ, from Adam moving forward, that they are, in the sa- they are safe in the arms of Christ, dressed in white robes, and they're waiting. They're all there safe waiting for us. In verses 9 and 10 of our chapter today, they, they are the victory cry when all the saints are gathered together after the last one of the redeemed of God ushered into the throne room of grace. And after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. On the victory that was achieved, on the day that victory was achieved over the Axis powers in World War II, the entire free world rejoiced. There were parades. There were celebrations. There was joy overflowing because their struggle, our struggle against our enemy was over. Evil had been defeated. The just had overcome. And what I just read to you in verses 9 and 10 is a far greater celebration, a far better celebration. And this is our victory celebration. And if you were given a viewfinder, if you were given the ability to zoom in on that crowd, if you were able to do that, you would find in the midst of that crowd, you rejoicing with joy overflowing and singing with the redeemed of God, salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne to the left. The revelations. And yes, I did put an S on the end of revelation since all the Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ. They are all given to us in order that we can know our God. And we miss this. We don't take advantage of this. We fail to take advantage of the grace that God has given to us. God condescends to communicating himself to his creation. That's an amazing grace. And he's given us his word in order for us to know him better. Do you realize that that is the meaning of a revelation? A revelation, it's, it, it's, it's an epiphany. It's the revealing of something. It's the uncovering of or the getting to know better of something. And God has condescended to write this book to you because of what he said in John 16, 33 said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. So was he meaning there the same tribulation that is spoken of in our verses from today? Does it really matter? Because Christ desires that you have peace in him in the midst of all tribulation. But in order to do that, in order for you to have that peace, you need a revelation of him. In fact, you should desire a revelation of Jesus Christ. You should be seeking for a revelation of him, wanting, yearning a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. And unlike what the Pentecostals will tell you, a revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't happen as you contemplate your navel or as you are in a so-called worship service with thousands of other unregenerate people singing songs that don't glorify him or barking like a dog or clucking like a chicken or going on some sort of a magical mystery tour. A revelation of Christ. It happens when you get to know him better. When you get to know Jesus better, exactly the same way you get to know all people better. You get to know all people better when you fall in love with them. And you do that by being with them, by hanging out with them, by doing life together with them. You're going through tribulations together with them. But the one thing that's invaluable in getting to know a person or falling in love with them more is knowing what it is that is the deepest part of them, what it is that that person loves. Because if you're ever really to know somebody, to, to love them, you have to know what they love. This is why we're given this revelation. We are supposed to understand who it is that Jesus loves. 
And this is also why we get confused about the 144,000 that is mentioned in that first part of chapter 7. We're confused. We're not clear about And for this reason, we don't have peace in him or even really know who we are in him. So who is it that Jesus loves? John chapter 14, verse 31 tells us that Jesus loves the Father. And John 10, 17 tells us that the Father loves the Son. And John 16, 27 tells us that the Father loves you because you have loved Christ and have believed that he came forth from the Father. So the Father loves us. The Father loves Jesus. And Jesus loves the Father. But who else does Jesus love? Because we're told in those hippie little songs that Jesus loves the little children. Is that what the Bible says, though? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27 tells us what Jesus loves. There, Christ tells us, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So let's take a closer look at what those verses say about who Jesus is. The first thing that we learn about him is that he loves his bride. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. And we're told how he demonstrated his love for his bride. He gave himself up for her. But what does that mean? What does giving himself up for the church mean? Hebrews 10.14 tells us, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this is what is meant by giving himself up. He made an offering of all that he was. And this is also what is meant by washing us in the water of the word. Listen again to verse 27 of Ephesians 5. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ gave his all to purchase the church in order that the church would be perfect for all time so that he could present the church to himself in all her glory, holy and blameless. See, we're not supposed to be confused about the 144,000, but we get confused when they're spoken to us in chapter 7 because of bad theology that we have been has been, been Given propagated towards us. And then we really get confused about the 144,000 when it's spoken of in Revelation 14. We don't equate ourselves to 144,000 there because of what is said of them in chapter 14. We think that 144,000, they can't be us because they're described in this way. This is what's said of them. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. 
These have been purchased from among the men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Well, that's not us. These are virgins. They're blameless. But do you not realize this is exactly the same thing that we're told in Hebrews chapter 10? This is the same thing, the exact same thing that is told to us in Hebrews chapter 5. The church, the bride that Jesus loves, he gave his all for because he loves her, because he died for her, and because of that, she is undefiled, a virgin. She is without hypocrisy. No lie is found in her mouth. She is holy and blameless. And we read those verses. And then we compare the reality of what we know about us. And we know we are not that. And that's why we're given chapter 7 of Revelation. Because Christ knows. We need a revelation of him. And included in that, we need to know who we are in him. We are his bride. And we are holy. And we are blameless. But you don't feel like this is truth. You know what goes on inside of your head. You remember that argument you just had with your spouse on the way to church this morning and how unkind you were to them. And this is why we need a revelation of Jesus Christ. C.H. Spurgeon knew his mind. He knew his frame. He knew that he was a saint, but that he was still a sinner, which is why he said the Lord does not reveal his secrets to the uncongenial mind. He that will do his will shall know of the doctrine, and he shall know all secret things. That was a truth that Spurgeon knew. But then he said, Oh, if we lived nearer to God, if we walked more in the love of Christ, how much more we might know and see And if we weren't given visions, there would be inward perceptions to our hearts which God would grant to us if we lived more in the light of his countenance. God in his grace, he gave us this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because we need to know our Savior better. Not need so that we could be more saved but need in order that our joy will be more complete, in order that we really can have peace in him. And the more of a revelation that you have of Jesus Christ, the more you will fall in love with him, and the more that he will receive the glory that is due his name. And when the bride, when we, the body of Christ, when we shout his praise in verse 10, this isn't the first time that we hear the bride shouting praise to God. He did that back in, we heard that back in chapter 5. After Christ stepped forward to take the scroll, there we sang this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood 
people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And there the saints sang that song in the present and then in the future tense, ending with they will reign upon the earth because we are not there yet. This is not what we sing on this day. On this day, we sing salvation belongs to our God who sits onto the throne and to the Lamb. And at the end of our chorus in chapter 5, the angels in heaven sang their part of that two-part harmony of eternity. And here, we hear once again the second part of the two-part chorus of heaven, beginning in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this is why and how we can be found in white, why we can be found in the throne room of grace. And we shout praise to God for his salvation. And what the heavenly host shouts, they say, Amen. They say, Amen to our praise of God, the Father, and the Son, because salvation does belong to them. They say, yes, this is truth. That's what amen means. But they have been with the Father and the Son and the Spirit longer than we have. They have had a better revelation of Jesus than we have yet to experience. So they say, amen, to our shout of praise to God, for he is salvation. But they say, this is not all that he is. God is also the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength forever and ever. That's the amen. And John is witnessing, what he is witnessing is the end of the age, the fullness of the Gentiles, The last of the saints to die is told to those that are waiting under that altar of God. And God knows that he, John, and we, he knows, he desires us to have a revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is why we are given verses 13 and 14. One of the elders answered, saying to me, These clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come? And I John answered him and said, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the lamb. And there it is. The great tribulation. These three words, they are stuff of legends. In fact, an entire book could be written about them. In fact, a book was written about them, but not just one book, but a multi-volume series was written just around these three words. And even some really bad movies were made surrounding them as well. 
And those books, those movies, that way of understanding these three words is not based upon a covenantal, redemptive, and historical understanding of the Bible. Matter of fact, it's not even based on biblical theology. The Great Tribulation has been made into the theme. By them, the Great Tribulation has been made into the theme of this book. This is not a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of the Great Tribulation, according to those that view this Great Tribulation as something more than what Christ said that it is. Do you not realize that word tribulation? That's not uncommon in the New Testament. Matter of fact, it's used 40 times in the New Testament alone. 17 times it's actually translated as affliction instead of tribulation, but it's the same word. But there's only one other place in the New Testament that speaks of the great tribulation, and that's found in Matthew 24. But listen in context to Jesus speaking of the great tribulation there. In verses 15 through 22, he said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And then right after that, there are these parentheses. There's this sentence in parentheses right after that. It says, let the reader understand. That's actually part of the original text. So when God said that about Daniel the prophet, Standing about the abomination of desolation, which Daniel the prophet spoke about, standing in the holy place, parentheses, let the reader understand. He actually put that there for us to think, huh, maybe I should read what the book of Daniel's got to say. Maybe I should consider the book of Daniel. He goes on, though. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop, housetop must not go down to get the things outside that are in his house and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garments woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days but pray that your flight won't be in the winter or on the sabbath for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will and unless those days have been cut short no life would be saved but for the sake of the elect those days will be cut short. So first of all, in the book of Matthew, Jesus was speaking to saints, no matter what their ethnicity was. And he told them, you're going to go through the great tribulation. In fact, that verse, the verses that precede that verse, these are even clearer concerning when the great tribulation occurs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, Christ said in Matthew 24. And again, who is Christ speaking about here when he said that? Then they will deliver you to tribulation. And they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Why did he say that we would go through this great tribulation? And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel 
the gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. As we travel through the book of Revelation, we will come back to Matthew 24 time and again. But just hold on to the understanding that because there is a definite article before tribulation found in our verses today, the great tribulation, that that is actually placed there to let us know that it's speaking about the one and only the great tribulation, the one that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, and even the one that was first spoken of in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And the book of Daniel there describes his revelation of Jesus Christ and this great tribulation in this manner. He said, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will stand. And there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Sounds like New Testament kind of stuff. To understand what this tribulation period is and when this great tribulation period is, we have to take into account the general flow of the revelation of Jesus Christ that Daniel gave to us. Because in his revelation, the earth dwellers persecute the people of God because of their faith. Christ said in Matthew 24 would happen. And it's in this time that the tribulation happens. Listen to verse 10 of Daniel 12. He says then, God says to us through Daniel, many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. So the people of God are actually spoken of here in this tribulation, alongside of the earth dwellers. And we are told that they go through the tribulation. But there is a delineation made there, a separation given to us. There's two separate groups spoken of in that Daniel verse that speaks of this great tribulation. Those that will be purged, purified, and refined, and those that will act wickedly. And those that will be purged, purified, and refined, they are the ones that are implied to have insight and will understand. But what is it? What is it that those who have insight, what is it that they will understand? Understand what the great tribulation is and why it is great. And this all ties back in with chapter 6 and the scroll with those seals. Those with insight, those, those that will understand, they will understand that the cross of Christ is the central and most important thing in all of creative history. The cross of Christ was predicted in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, when God said he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this is the same stone that God said would become the chief cornerstone in Isaiah 28, 16, where we're told, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. 
and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. And these are the verses that both Peter and Paul quote concerning those that are offended by the cross of Christ in Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter 2.6. Those that are purged, refined, and purified, they will understand that the tribulation is merely the life that Christ spoke of in John 16.33 when he said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me ye may have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We have not been taught to understand that this life all life under the curse is tribulation. And the life that we have in Christ because of him, because we are no longer of the world, under the yoke of, of the slavery to Satan, the life that we have in Christ is great tribulation. And this is why Paul could say in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that word there is the same word for tribulation. He said, in my flesh, on behalf of his body, which is the church. John said in verse 9 of chapter 1, Revelation, I, John, your brother, feller partaker in the tribulation, definite article, and the kingdom, and the perseverance, was, um, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Christ. The great tribulation, it began with the persecution, the murder of Christ in Jerusalem in A.D. 33. The great tribulation began on that day as the earth dwellers and the world demonstrated their allegiance to their master in hating God and murdering his son. That is the most central moment in all of creation. Everything that happened up before that point was leading up towards that moment. Everything that happened before that point found its meaning and its purpose in that moment in time. And the same is true for everything, every moment since then. Do you not understand the centrality of Christ and his cross, because if he had not been murdered, if he had not willingly laid his life down for the elect of God, there would be no saints in white robes. There would be no chosen people that were saved. And even outside of that, even without the redemption that is found in the offering of the Son of God, the Holy Host would still have been in heaven proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But they would never have had this revelation of the reality of the glory and the majesty that is Jesus Christ outside of the cross of Calvary. Saints, we are currently going through the great tribulation. The events, the things that all humanity deal with, they are the great tribulation. And as has been proven by the martyrs of God, the tribulation period has only served to do that which Daniel 12.10 
what it said there, that it will purify and refine the saints of God. And this is why Paul, under the inspiration of the seal of God, the Holy Spirit could pen Romans 5, 1 through 5. He said, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And this is our sealing. This is our praise of God now in this realm. And it will be our praise when we're under that altar and then before the throne of God as well. But Paul went on. He said, not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions bring about perseverance, perseverance proving character, proving character, hope. Hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Why Peter, under the inspiration of the seal of God, could pen 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that, this is why you have been grieved by the so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is why our brother James could admonish us the way he does. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James. And if you haven't encountered great tribulation in this life, praise God for that. Or maybe not. Because Christ said that tribulations are good for us. They are the means that we actually get to know him better. And if you haven't been persecuted by the world, by the earth dwellers, if you desire to be personally convinced that this time is the time of testing that Christ spoke about, if you desire to get a better revelation of Jesus Christ, all you merely need to do is go to a local Or go stand outside a murder mill and preach Christ and him crucified. Or just stand for the truth of God in your life. You'll find that what Christ in verses 18 through 20 is truth. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of this world, but because I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, will also persecute you. And when this happens to you, as this happens to you, 
you will understand the tribulation. And you will understand why those saints under that altar, why they cry out to the Lord to avenge on the earth dwellers. And we are given these revelations of Jesus Christ, the ones in our chapters, in chapter 7, found within this book of Revelation, in order for us to get to know our God better, in order for us to make heads and tails of the events that are surrounding us, life in general, in order for us to know that we will stand and why we will stand. It's not because of you. It's because you've by God, in God, and for God. And this is the very assurance that is spoken of in verses 15 through 17 of Revelation 7. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. And he who sits on the throne will dwell over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The saints that are spoken of here in our chapter, these are the same very ones that are spoken of in chapter 6 that are found under the altar. Here we're told, he who sits on the throne will dwell over them. These are before the throne and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. This is the promise is made the book of Revelation in chapter 1. Listen to verses 4 to 6. This is not end time stuff. Not something that we are to look forward to. John said in chapter 1 of Revelation, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, released us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. We are a kingdom. Priests to God, his Father. And God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And what we're told of here, this is the fulfilling of a promise made to the chosen elect Loved by God, sons of God. Found back in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. God says, so now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Who does Christ love? For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And that promise was made to the true Israel, which is what we know of as the church. Saints, we are not supposed to be looking for something more, something new, a new tabernacle, a new temple, or even a new Jerusalem. We have nothing more to look for or to look to in this life. Jesus paid it all. And the promise made in verse 17 is the eternal reward for all the saints, every saint that's a saint, 
the lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the same promise made by Christ in John chapter 10, verse 11. He said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And this is the fulfilling of that covenant promise made to David. He told us, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And this promise was not made to David because of an ethnicity. It was made to him because of the undeserved, unmerited grace and favor of God, which is exactly what David knew. He said, he guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And he knew tribulation, and he knew where it came from. In verse 4, he said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before, before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Isn't this true for us? And David knew, he knew that one day that he would end up with the rest of the saints of God before the throne of God, a kingdom made priest to his God. He said in verse 6 of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Verse 17 is a fulfilled promise made to the elect chosen people of God. As told to us in Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death for all time and Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for Yahweh has spoken. And these verses, this revelation, this is all given us to give us hope. In the midst of this great tribulation. Saints, do you never feel? Do you never understand that the weight of this life is too much to bear? Especially when you stand for righteousness. I mean, doesn't it just seem that the more that you endeavor to know the Lord better, the harder life seems to get? even if the tribulation is only what we would call normal life. Dear precious saints, the Lord has given you and me, he's given us this revelation of Jesus Christ in order for us to find comfort. We're supposed to understand the importance of whose we are. We're supposed to understand that the things that happen in your life, in my life, yes, they do happen to us. And even in some sense, they happen for us. But they're just like the, the events that happen in David's life. Those things that happen to him and for him, 
They also happened for you and for me. The hurts, the pains, the fears that he felt, just like for him, yours are supposed to be used for the church, to build the church up, to comfort and even correct the church just like his were. The things that you're encountering, they're also for the church just as much as they are for you for the simple reason that your rock is my rock. And when you are real, when you confess in open honesty, the tribulation that you are facing, and even your fears with the body, when you at the same time in open and honesty confess very often through pain and tears and sorrows that everything in life is just a dark cloud, of sunshine coming through and you rely on your salvation the rock of your salvation it's then in the midst of that tribulation it's then that God is glorified because he's redeemed you because he's given you a new heart your sins. He's rebranded you with his and you will not fall. Oh, you may stumble. You may falter. But then you're strengthened and you stand in the day of adversity. And when you do, you praise God just as David did. And it's then, it is then, it is then that you like David, it is then that you will know the truth of verse 17 is in fact truth. That he is our shepherd and he will lead us to green pastures. Saints, I implore you, seek the Lord. Don't play with this. Seek him as a man that is dying of thirst seeks water. Seek him like that parent that has lost their child seeks after their lost child. Seek him as the treasure that he is. You've already been given. The seeking that we do now is not gaining more of him. It's losing more of us. And this is the seeking that we're meant to do in finding the one that this is a revelation of. 
received, we will come out of this great for the simple reason that we are dressed in white, because we are undefiled, we are holy, because we have been rebranded. We have been sealed by the other paraclete, and this is what we seek to know, the one that this is a revelation of. 